Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope you do, I want to encourage you to open them to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. Uh, but as you're finding your place there, I want to welcome those who are joining us via our live stream. Um, we're grateful for all of you. Also, the venue service. We have a service that meets right down the hall. And then Reach Church uh, Paola. And we're grateful for you. Uh, Reach Church Paola is doing wonderful. Um, can't uh, wait to see all that God's going to do. Grateful for all that God is doing. Uh, pray for Pastor Darren. Uh, but, but God's doing a wonderful work in Paola, and we're excited to be a part of it. And we're glad you're with us this morning. Also, Reach Church DeSoto and Pastor Ryan. And Pastor Ryan, there's two Pastor Ryans out at DeSoto, okay? So if you go out there asking for Pastor Ryan, you don't know what you're going to get. So, um, but go out there. If you ever have a Sunday when you can go out and worship in, in DeSoto, you would love to be a part of that group or Paola. I know they'd enjoy having you, and you'd be blessed by it. But we're, we're grateful for all of them. I, I want to read a psalm to you this morning. We're going to have a little time of prayer this morning as, uh, before we begin. It's a Psalm 33, a psalm that I've just been uh, meditating on for quite some time. I've been working my way through the psalms as we've been studying David's life, and this is a psalm that stuck out to me and spent much time there. I think you'd be blessed by it this morning. But Psalm 33 says this, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming the righteous ones. Uh, give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Sing praises to the Lord with a harp of ten strings. Sing to the Lord a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear him. Let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood still. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chose for his own inheritance. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from his holy dwelling place. The Lord looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. A king is not saved by a mighty army, uh, a warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it save anyone by its strength. But the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, who hope in his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. We're gonna pray. We're gonna pray for Israel. We're gonna pray for our government. We're gonna pray for this world. God is sovereign, amen. He's at work today. We've read the end of the book. We know how this story ends. 
but we're going to pray in accordance with his words. So I'm going to bend my knee here and pray. If you want to bend your knee, you're welcome to come to an altar out in the pew or just right where you're sitting. There's no pressure, just however you felt compelled. But I'm going to bend my knee as we go to the Lord in prayer. So let's pray together as God's people. Lord, as we come before you this morning, we acknowledge that you are God of all creation. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. God, you are sovereign. You are in control. When the world looks like it is out of control, we know and we look to you, seated on your throne. God, we, we look to you this morning. We come before you humbly, not on the basis of our own merit, but we come today through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and we cry out, Abba, Father, knowing that you hear our prayers and that you answer in accordance with your word. And we intercede on behalf of this nation Israel that is precious to your heart, this nation to whom you have made promises, promises that you will fulfill. And we ask for your protection and we ask that you guide them and we ask that you direct them and be with their leadership we pray and ask that you put your protection upon those soldiers that go out to do your work. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with the hostages and those families who have lost loved ones. And Lord, we pray that as a result of these circumstances, you would draw the nation of Israel to yourself, that they would look unto you. And many would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for the salvation of all peoples. We pray that you would use this to draw all men and women to yourself. Lord, I pray for our president. Pray for the House and the Senate. Lord, we know that the king's heart is in your hand and we trust in that today. And God, we pray that you would move, you would divinely intervene. And God, you would, you would draw this nation back to yourself by whatever means necessary because we know without you, we are nothing. Lord, help us, we as your people who are called by your name, I pray that we would humble ourselves and we would pray and you would heal our land. God, we look at these things and we can't help but think that we are in the end time. The time is drawing short. Your word has told us that the days are evil. I pray, Lord, we don't know the day or the hour. There's much we don't know. But we know time is short. Either you will return or we will pass and God, we want to be faithful to the mission that you've given to us. So God, help us to be faithful in our day to the purposes of God, to fix our eyes on Jesus and point people to you. Lord, help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I want to encourage you to continue to pray. These are significant times. And we as God's people need to be in prayer. Well, we turn our attention to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6 this morning. If you'll remember, uh, these are special days in the life of the nation. David has been appointed king. He, he has now brought the entire nation under his leadership. They have anointed him king. And you remember, he has established Jerusalem as the capital city, the eternal city of, uh, capital city of God's people. 
He's finished the conquest uh, that, that Joshua didn't finish, that Israel didn't finish when they were told to rid the land of the Canaanites. And there's this stronghold of Canaanites in, in Jerusalem, Jebusites, and David pushes them out and he establishes the capital city. And then he, he actually pushes out the Philistines. God had raised up David. God raised up Saul to defeat the Philistines. God raised up David to defeat the Philistines. And he does. He inquires of the Lord under God's direction and he defeats them. We're not going to hear about the Philistines anymore. They're not going to be a problem. David does what God told him to do. But what David does next, I would submit to you, is even more significant than anything he's done prior to this moment. How can I say that? How can I say that it's more significant? I, I say it's more significant because God, in response to this in chapter 7, is going to give to David the highest commendation that God can give to any man. God will say to David, one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne forever. David, through your lineage is going to come the Messiah of all the world. That's a pretty good commendation, wouldn't you say? And it's a response to what David does here. So this is highly significant in the life of the nation. And it's a two-part series, all right? So you got to come back next week and get the follow-up. But it's a two-part deal. It's a two-part deal because David will set out with a good heart to do a very noble thing, but he'll get off track and he won't do it according to God's word. In fact, you're not going to see him praying. He's not going to inquire of the Lord. He's not going to inquire of his word. He'll set out with a good heart, but it's not in accordance with God's word. And guess what? God's going to bring judgment. God's going to bring chastening. And then God will give him a mulligan. Don't you love mulligans? God's going to give him a do-over. Let's start this over. And I'm not going to change, but you're going to change. And we're going to try this deal again. And David will do it in accordance with God's word. And God will bless him. Isn't that how God works sometimes in our lives? We're seeking to follow him. We're seeking. Maybe we have a good heart, but we get off track. And God every now and then has to set us down and say, stop it. You're not going to do that anymore. And God doesn't change. Guess what he does? He changes us. And then when we walk in accordance with his word, then we know his blessing. That's what God's gonna do in David's life. Powerful moment. Let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this text. Father, thank you for your word that speaks so plainly to us. God, speak to us. That is our prayer today. Bless your word. The centerpiece of our worship today. We gather around the truth. We don't come. We don't have the liberty to change your word. We don't come desiring for you to change. We come submitting our lives to you and saying to you, O God, change us. Conform us to your will. Conform us to Christ that we might know your blessing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look with me, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. David, um, a critical moment, pushed out the Philistines, a position of peace now. Everything's kind of stable in the nation but David, as he uh, begins to establish the capital city and a palace begins to be built for him, David says something's not right. David realizes, I don't want to rule without the presence of God. I, I don't want to rule without the glory of God in his rightful place. This is a good king who realizes there's somebody above me and I'm accountable to him and we're not going to move forward without him. And so David desires to bring the ark of God into its rightful place as the centerpiece of worship amongst God's people. See, the ark of God represents the, the glory and presence of God on earth. 
Now remember, God is the eternal God. He's not contained in a box. But don't you love this about God? In recognition of man's weakness, we'll condescend sometimes to the level of man giving us a physical representation to comfort us in our weaknesses. And so what God has done for the nation, he's given this cardboard cutout of an eternal reality to demonstrate or represent his presence amongst the people. In fact, in Exodus 25, um, God says to Moses, this is where I'll meet with you, meaning the ark. This is where I'll speak to you. This is an earthly representation of my glory and my presence. In fact, here it says, when it describes it, it says the ark of God, which is called by the name. When it says the name, it's referring to the personal covenantal name of God. That this is not just a one of a many little g gods. No, this is the one true God of all creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That name right there, that is Yahweh, that is Jehovah, that is the great I am, the eternal, immutable, uh, sovereign, holy, all-powerful God. In fact, it says, uh, uh, called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts. When it talks about the host, it means that all creation and all the heavenly host is his, and it is all under his sovereign control. He made it. And so it is a recognition that this ark represents an eternal reality of the presence of God and the, the glory of God amongst the nation. But you remember, we haven't seen it in a while, have we? Um, the ark of God had been lost in battle. You remember the Israelites with Eli under his leadership? Uh, you remember those stories in 1 Samuel 6? We looked at two years ago, whenever it was. Uh, but back then, you remember, they, instead of treating the ark of God with the holiness and the awe and respect it deserved as the visible representation of God's glory and his presence on earth. They used it as a trinket, a rabbit's foot in the midst of a battle, thinking they can manipulate God and use God to achieve their own purposes, and they lose that battle, don't they? And it's taken, the ark of God is taken from them, the Philistines take it back to their place, and you remember what they do with it? They put it in the temple of Dagon, and what happens? They wake up the next morning, and Dagon is bowed down to God. It's a bad deal when you gotta set back up your deity, you know? You gotta lift him up and put him back in his rightful place. And they set him up and then they come back the next morning. Remember what happened? He's bowed down again, only this time he doesn't have hands and head. God has crushed him. And so they, then they begin to pass the ark of God around to these different cities and all these plagues break out on the people and they say, enough, send that thing back. Get it out of here. God's far too holy for us. And they send it back, you remember? They put it on a new cart. And see, these are Gentiles, they don't know. They're just doing the best they can. They're kind of groping in the dark. They put it on a new cart. God's gonna be gracious with them because they don't know better. They don't have the word of God. They put it on a new cart. These cows, you remember, lowing, moaning as they went, meaning, remember, this is the Lord of hosts. All creation is his. Those cows were separated from their mama. This is not what cows do. And they went straight. They were groaning, meaning they're going against their natural instincts. God is directing them. And God directs the ark back to the people of God and they make sacrifice. But you remember what happens then? The men of Beth Shemesh say, well, I've always wanted to know what's inside that deal. And they do what they shouldn't and they open it up. And you remember, a bunch of them die. And all of a sudden, they begin to realize the holiness of God and they say, we're not sure about this whole deal. And they, they put it over 
in Abinadab's house in Kiriath-Jerim. Here it's called Baal uh, Judah, but it's the same place, Kiriath-Jerim, Abinadab's house, and they consecrate Eliezer. These are Kohathites. The Kohathites were given responsibility for caring for the ark of God. They were given the instructions. They put it in, in, in Abinadab's house and Eliezer's house. They just kind of sit there just collecting dust. Just been over there. You know how long it's been there? About 50 years. And Ichabod has been written over the nation. The glory of God has departed from this nation. And now as David is ascending to the throne, he says, we're not gonna, we're not gonna move forward. And I'm certainly not gonna reign without the presence of God in his rightful place. That's a good king, isn't it? That I can't reign apart from the presence and the glory of God and, and him being worshiped in the way he deserves. And so David is doing a very noble thing and bringing up the ark of God. But if there's something that you notice here that should be causing us a bit of concern, you do not see as yet, you do not see David praying. In the previous chapter, we saw David praying a lot. He was inquiring of the Lord before the Philistines. We don't see a lot of praying and we don't see a searching of the word. I think David just kind of gets caught up in the excitement, exuberance of bringing the ark back. We're gonna bring it back. Good idea. Here we go. Goes to Abinadab's house. Get your boys. Let's bring the thing home. Well, look at the next verse. It says, they placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. If you're reading verse three, if you know your Old Testament, if you know Numbers chapter four, which you should, but if you know your Old Testament, you know the book of Numbers, as soon as you read that, that they put it on a new cart, you say to yourself, like I do, you write out on the side of your Bible, uh-oh. Houston, we got a problem here. Why do we have a problem? Why is this an issue? It's an issue because in Numbers chapter four, God gave the Kohathites very specific instructions about how they're supposed to care for the ark of God. Very specific instructions. They were never to look upon. Two real, I put out the side of my book, two, two real commands. No looky, no touchy, all right? No look, no touch. You don't ever do that. That's what God says to the nation. Very simple. He couldn't make it more clear. In fact, the, 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 the sons of Aaron, they were the ones who were appointed to go in before the presence of God, and they were to make sure that they did everything they could, that no Kohathite actually lived there to cover it, the skins of animals over this thing, the curtain that was thick that protected you, you cover it, and, and if you carried it, the Kohathites were told when you carry it, you don't put it on a cart, you don't pick it up. You got these poles, and you're only to carry it on your shoulder. God gave them very specific instructions. Now, we don't know why. Now, we can surmise they put it on a new cart. Who was the last group of people to put it on a cart? The Philistines did. Philistines didn't know any better. They have no word of God. They're ignorant to the truth of God. God's gracious with them. But these guys, the Kohathites, they know. But you know what I think? They saw the Philistines do it. And well, that, folks, we get into all kinds of trouble when we start mingling the things of this world with the things of God. That's a dangerous place to see. When we start imitating the world in our worship of God, we're going down a bad path. And so they, they kind of get mixed up. Maybe, um, maybe they thought, I mean, they grew up. Imagine this. The ark probably covered, but it, 
They grew up, these boys, I was in Ohio, they grew up with the ark of God being in the, like the den, you know, in the house. And if you're not careful, you become so familiar. You start to think, well, boy, see, I'm special and I'm around it all the time and I can pretty much do whatever I want to do. And that's a dangerous place to be. In fact, I think that's so good for us to hear as Christians. We can grow up around the things of God and the word of God so, so much that we become so familiar with it that we lose a sense of awe and reverence for God and his holiness. That's a dangerous place to be. So they're not doing, not a good start, not, not a good plan from the get-go. No seeking the instruction manual. You ever do that in building something? I am terrible at it. I'm smart enough to figure this deal out. I ain't read no instruction manual. I can do this on my own. Yeah, see how that goes. Usually end up with about six screws left over that aren't important ever, you know. Does that ever happen to you guys? My family always say, what parts do you have left over? Just a few. They, I'm sure they were unimportant. Um, but here, as in Ohio, not a good start. Look at verse five. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. It's a special day. It's a special day. Why? It's special because the glory of God is returning. Moses, when he would get up in the morning, he would say, when they would move the tabernacle, he would get up and say, arise, O God, according to the strength of your ark. And they'd take the ark. And you remember, God led them, um, cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and they would come to its resting place. They'd find the resting place for the tabernacle, and Moses would say, return, O God, according to the strength of your ark. And God was in his rightful place. And the nation knew the blessing of God. And the ark of God is returning. And the glory of God, the Ichabod's been written over. And now the glory of God's returning and the people are rejoicing. See, when a na- blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. When a nation re- realizes that God is the authority and they submit to his authority and the leadership submits to his authority, then the nation rejoices. This is a good day. So they're excited, all kinds of celebration. They got a good heart, and the people are pleased. The people are excited. If you would have interviewed, you know, News Channel, been there, uh, boy, we're reporting on the celebration here. Are things going well? Things could not be going better. I'm telling you, it's incredible. The people are pleased. But when it comes to worshiping God, it doesn't matter what the people think. It matters what God thinks. So the real question is, is God pleased? Is God pleased with how this is going? Well, we find out pretty quickly. So read on in the story. It says in verse six, but when they came uh, to the threshing floor of Nacron, Uzzah reached out towards the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah and God struck him down here, uh, down there for his irreverence and he died there by the ark of God. And you look at this and you say, my goodness, what in the world is going on here? I mean, this seems a bit extreme. Why has God responded in this kind of way? They're they're traveling along and something happens and the oxen begin to stumble. Did the oxen stumble when the Philistines sent it back? Never stumbled. Here, these oxen stumble. And this is just, I, I do a, a little bit of this. I always pray, Lord, protect you from me sometimes. But 
I think these things are, you know what I think's going on here? These oxen, they're part of God's creation, right? I think as part of God's creation, those oxen are smarter and know more than Ohio and Uzzah. They know this is wrong. They know this is not right. The book of Jonah, I love the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, every aspect of that whole story, everything is in submission to God. The winds and the waves do what God commands. The fish does what God commands. The... uh, (laughs) The the Ninevites do what God commands. God raises up a plant. The plant does what he commands. God raises up a caterpillar that does what, you ever try to train a caterpillar? It's not easy. The caterpillar does what God commands. You know the only person in the whole story that doesn't do what God commands? Jonah, his prophet. But all of creation is submissive to its creator. I think these oxen, I think Uzzah who's leading the carts, is he kind of kicking against the goats. And these oxen are saying, buddy, you may die, but we ain't dying. We're staying right here. And they're kind of bucking against him. And all of a sudden, the ark begins to fall. And, and it looks honorable. I mean, us is just trying to keep, he's just trying to keep the ark of God from falling to the ground, the contents scattering out. We don't want to let it touch the ground. I mean, uh, Jonathan Edwards, one of his servants, said that he made the mistake of thinking that his hand was more holy than the ground. The ground in creation submits to its creator, but us is not walking in obedience. And God strikes him dead and the party suddenly stopped. Nothing like a dead body to kill a party. And God is sending a message. He's saying, boys, everybody out of the pool, all right? Party over. We're stopping right here. Why? What is God doing? Seems extreme. What is God doing? Can I just give you three three really critical lessons that God is teaching David? God is teaching that nation. And God, I believe, wants to teach us three incredibly important things. Number one, good intentions do not negate evil actions. You might say, well, boy, he had a good heart. He was just trying to do the right thing. He was incredibly sincere. Listen to me this morning. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. See, that, 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 there are a lot of people out in the world today that, 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 that they think they're worshiping God in a way that pleases him, but they have not consulted the truth of his word. And because they're not worshiping in accordance with his word, then their worship is not acceptable or pleasing to him. Good intentions. A lot of good intended people out there that are not worshiping God in accordance with his truth and therefore their worship is not acceptable. In fact, it's displeasing to him. Good intentions don't negate evil actions. We've seen this throughout the books of First and Second Samuel that the ends don't justify the means. The second important lesson that you gotta learn is when it comes to worshiping God, You approach God according to his word. When it comes to approaching God, you approach God according to the truth of his word. You don't tell God how you're going to approach him. He tells you how you're going to approach him. And God has given them instructions about how they worship him. God has given them instructions about how they they, they should deal with him. And any, anything outside of his word is unacceptable to God. 
And the way that God has determined is, is a mediatorial system. So when it comes to approaching God, the Kohathites were carriers, they were caretakers. But the only people, you got the sons of Aaron, the high priest that were allowed to go into the presence of God. But you remember when the high priest in, went in, they only went in in what way? Through the shed blood of an unblemished lamb. They would sprinkle the shed blood of the unblemished lamb on the mercy seat of the tabernacle or the ark of God. They did not approach on their own. They approached through the shedding of blood through an unblemished lamb. And that was a symbol directing them to the ultimate substance, which is Jesus Christ, who is the perfect lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. The message of scripture is you don't get to come to God any way you choose. You come through sacrifice. You come through the one he has chosen. And ultimately in the New Testament, you come through Jesus Christ because he is the way to God, because he's the only one in keeping with the truth of God, meaning he's the only one who is perfectly obedient because he's God, and therefore he alone is the bestower of life. You don't get to pick and choose how you come to God. You come in accordance with his truth, or you don't come at all. And if you don't come according to his way, you'll ultimately know his judgment. You come in accordance with his truth. What Ohio and Uzza should have done is they should have stopped everything. As soon as the oxen started to kick a little bit, hey guys, how's about we stop and go back to the instruction manual? Maybe we ought to go back and see what God has said about this. But they don't do that. In their arrogance and their pride, I guess they think they can now innovate. See, there's no innovating when it comes to worshiping God. We don't progress beyond Jesus. He is the only way to God. The third and final lesson is this. God makes no idle threats. God makes no idle threats. God had told the Kohathites, you look, you touch, you die. They did, he did. God told Adam and Eve in the garden, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for the day you eat of it, you will surely die. They did and they died. God has told us, it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And God makes no idle threats. Uh, in Peter's day, the thought was, well, God hasn't returned. They were telling Peter, well, listen, God hasn't returned to judge, so God's not going to judge. Peter says, well, let me tell you something. God judged the world in the days of Noah, and he judged a city called Sodom and Gomorrah. And you better mark it down and take it to the bank. He's gonna judge you. And if you don't come through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you will not know earthly death, you will know eternal death. And that is not an idle threat. What Peter says is don't mistake his patience for a lack of follow through. Every one of us are gonna stand before God and you're either gonna stand, come in your own way because you think you know better than God or you're gonna come through the way in which his justice and wrath and holiness is appeased and paid for and that person is Jesus Christ. He is the way to God, he's keeping with the truth of God, and therefore he alone is the bestower of life. So Uzzah, in fact it says here, he died because of his irreverence. That is um, a difficult word to translate, it's what's called a hopox legomenon. 
And don't you like that? I, I just wanted to say that because I'm from Oklahoma and just feel good about myself when I can say a word like that. But anyway, <laughs> it just means a word that's only used once in scripture. And we have a hard time translating, but most agree that it's not just referring to irreverence. It's talking about rebellious pride. Meaning somehow Uzzah and his brother got to a place of thinking, I think we can do this however we want to do this. I don't know if it's because they grew up around it and maybe they had some kind of special place. The Kohathites tended to be a prideful people. Remember, it was the Kohathites who argued with uh, Moses about being able to enter in the presence of God. The Kohathites said, we don't like this whole mediatorial system and the sons of Aaron being able to go, but us not. We, we think we ought to be able to go into the presence of God. Moses said, show up tomorrow morning, we'll let God decide. They show up next morning, guess what happens? The earth splits forward. The Kohathites are swallowed by the earth, which is a pretty good indicator you're not doing it the right way. But this, they're Kohathites. And in their sinful pride, they kind of snubbed their nose at God. The idea being, we know what God says, but we think we can do whatever we want to do. And God says, it doesn't work that way. And God sends a powerful message to the nation of Israel. Look at David's reaction. In verse eight, David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David became angry. David is upset. You know what David is saying? I don't like God's ways. I, I, God is just. You can say what you want about God, but you cannot say that God is not just. He is just. He, and he's not safe, by the way. He is good. He is holy, but he's not safe. And he's blindingly holy. In fact, he's very predictable. But David says, I don't like it. You ever had that thought in your mind? You're like, I don't like God's ways. Don't like the way he's ruling the universe. I think I would have been a little more gracious to Uzzah. And he's a little frustrated. And here's what David has to learn. Here's what you and I have to learn. That God is sovereign. He is holy. He is all powerful. He is all knowing. He is creator. And we are creation. See, here's the thing about God. He thinks he's God and he thinks you're not. We are his creation, and he's not answerable to us. We are answerable to him. He is not obligated to us. We are obligated to him. He does not exist to do our will. We exist to do his will. And it doesn't matter whether or not he pleases us, but it is supremely important whether or not we please him. And he doesn't need to fit our ideas of rightness and goodness. We need forgiveness for our failure to keep his right and good ways in our own life. He is God. Can I just ask you today, because this is central to this text and I think to our lives. Are you gratefully submissive to a God who is sovereign and holy today? Are you willing, in light of God's holiness and sovereignty, and his ways are not our ways, and he may not always do what you want, but are you gratefully willing to submit your life all your dreams, your plans, and your expectations to a God who is perfectly holy and sovereign. That is exactly what God asked us to do. It's what God asked David to do. He called that place Perez. Remember what Perez, we stopped there, means breakthrough. Now he's upset. He was happy when God broke through the Philistines. Now he's not so happy when God breaks through Uzzah. But the picture here is God is even-handed. He plays no favorites. It doesn't matter who you are. You don't want to get on the wrong side of God. 
There is no special exemption. There's no genealogical exemption. You either submit to him as God, placing your faith in Messiah and you know his blessing, or you reject and you rebel and you know his judgment. But all of a sudden, now on this side of it, David's not so sure he wants to move forward with this God. In fact, in verse nine, it says, that, so David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? He says, if God's this holy and this serious, I'm not sure I can come to him. David, you know what David is afraid of? God took us and God may take me. And it's actually a rightful concern. David, you don't get, you don't get a special exemption. You have to submit to. And David presses pause. It says in verse, eight, uh, verse 10, and, and David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him, but David took it to the house of, aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. David presses pause. David withdraws from God. It's kind of a dark place in David's reign. He says, I'm not so sure about this. I mean, this, this event shook David to his core. I'm not sure about walking with this God because it's a fearful thing. And he withdraws and he says, we're gonna take the ark over to Obed-Edom's house. Now, I love to do this. Put yourself in the shoes of Obed-Edom. I mean, they show up at your house. Hey, Obed, yeah, what's going on? Um, we got something we'd like to store in your garage for three months, if you don't mind. What is it? Well, it destroyed Shiloh, destroyed the Philistines, killed a whole bunch of men at Beth Shemesh, um, destroyed Dagon, just killed Uzzah. But we'd like to keep it in your garage for a few days, if you don't mind. If I'm Obed-Edom, whoa, 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 hold on here a second. And I may just be conjecturing, but you know what I think Obed-Edom did? If this ark represents the holiness of God and it just took a whole bunch of people's lives, I think I'm gonna be really careful how I handle it. Do you think he got the message about God's holiness? You don't think there was a little bit of fear and trembling in Obed-Edom? You don't think he was careful? And you know what I think Obed-Edom did? Let's get out the instruction manual on this deal. Uh, we tried this our way, didn't work out so well. Let's go back to the word. And you know what Obed-Edom does? He changes. Does God change? Is God still holy? Yes, he is. Is God still fearful? Yes, he is. Can God still take somebody's life who doesn't come in the way that he's demanded? Yes, he can. What changed? Obed-Edom changed. Obed-Edom is going to conform his life to the word of God, and now the presence of God in his life will bring a blessing and not a curse. Isn't that good? And what God will do to David is he'll demonstrate to him, David, I am holy. David, I am to be feared, but I'm also a God who delights in mercy. And so David hears, Obed-Hedim's, and you gotta, if you want the fullness story, you gotta come back next week, all right? That's the, that's the catch, you gotta come back next week. But, but basically what God does is he demonstrates grace and mercy to Obed-Hedim. And David, do you know what God is saying to David? David, listen to me. You don't have to live without me. But here's what you need to understand. If you're gonna live with me, I don't change. God is immutable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. A lot of people say, well, this is just an Old Testament story. This ain't the way God works in the New Testament. Then you ain't read your New Testament. 
Because read Acts chapter five this afternoon and there's a couple of people who meet a very similar fate when they're irreverent towards God's holiness. But David comes, God comes to David and says, David, you don't have to live without me, but here's what you do have to do. You have to change. God says to David, I ain't changing. I'm immutable. I'm the same as I've always been. How about you change? How about you repent and, and you make your life submissive to my word and my will and then my presence will bring blessing and not a curse. What a beautiful picture. So many people in this world, they wanna make God into their own image. They want a nice fluffy God who just lets them do whatever they wanna do. You're not gonna find that God in the Bible. He's not a nice fluffy God. He is a holy God and he is to be feared and he is not safe. But he does show mercy. But it requires us submitting our life to him in repentance and we change. That's called salvation, isn't it? Where God does like he did with David, he comes to us and he shows us his holiness and we see the depth of our sin and when we see his holiness in the depth of our sin, we got one of two choices. We can say, God, how about you change to accommodate my sinfulness? That's what a lot of people want. God, you just give a pass to my sin. God ain't changing. He's holy. He can't give a pass to sin. And because he can't give a pass to sin, he sent Jesus to absorb the wrath and the holiness of God on the cross. And now God has said, you can come to me but you gotta change the direction of your life. You gotta submit to my son. You change your life in accordance with my word and now the presence of my life will be a blessing to you. And guess what we're called to be today? We're called to be a bunch of Obed-Edoms. Obed-Edom who saw the holiness and the judgment of God and repented and changed his life and lived his life in accordance with God's word and he knew the blessing of God and that's what we demonstrate to the world is that God, yes, he's holy, but he's also merciful. But you gotta come to Jesus. You gotta bend the knee, you gotta submit to him, you gotta walk in obedience to his word. And when you walk in obedience to his word, there's blessing. And can we as believers, can we get off track? Can we sometimes as believers, we know Jesus, we call ourselves Christians, but we get to a place where we start to think, you know, I'm smart enough to do this without the word, and we don't read the word. See, that's arrogance. That's called irreverence towards God. And we start, this whole marriage deal, I can figure it out on my own. I don't need the instruction manual. I got a college degree. Hey, go ahead, God says. Figure that out on your own. And guess what there is? There's pain. And God says, listen, I've rigged this deal. There's only one way to do it right, and it's according to the instruction manual. But if you'll admit your error and submit to my word, you can know my blessing. But I ain't changing to accommodate your knowledge. How's about all of us, instead of asking God to change today, submit our lives in repentance towards him? Father, we thank you for your word today that draws us unto yourself. I thank you for this text. It's not just some ancient historical narrative. This is a word that is relevant for us today. And I pray for anybody here today that doesn't know you. I pray that they would you would open the eyes of their heart to see the holiness. The, 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 it's so hard to even define your holiness. God, you're so set apart 
but I pray that we would get a glimpse of your holiness, get a glimpse of your glory, and in light of your glory and your holiness, we'd see the depth of our sin, and we'd admit the, the error of our ways. We would repent, and we'd turn to Christ as the only means of salvation. And we submit our lives to you, submit our lives to the living word of Jesus Christ and submit our lives to the, to the written word that you have given to us that we might know your blessing and your salvation. Lord, I pray that for all of us, even those today who would call ourselves believers. Boy, if we disregard you, if we put you off, we do so to our own regret and our own peril. May every day we go to the instruction manual and ask you, to change our lives in accordance with your word so that we might know your blessing. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.